Hi, everybody. My name is Sheldon. I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, if you would indulge me, could you join me in the serenity prayer? God, God grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So, um, the topic for our, for our workshop this afternoon is the three legacies. And I was just having a great conversation uh, with my friend Harold before uh, we gathered here uh, for the workshop about the three legacies and how important they are uh, in each of our sobrieties and what they mean to us. And uh, I'm very blessed. I'm a member of a home group that is, uh, to use Harold's term, is a strong three legacy group. And uh, I'm very blessed to have had in in my sobriety since I was very new, so much so that I didn't even know that I was being immersed in the three legacies. I was very lucky and very blessed when I got sober. I have the same sponsor today that I've had since I was, I think I was four days sober when I met the gentleman. And he's a guy that is very, very focused on steps and on recovery and on working with new people and on the strength and fellowship of the home group. So to me, it wasn't like we ever sat down and had a conversation about we're going to we're going to teach you about the three legacies. We're going to learn about recovery and what recovery means in the three sides of the triangle. And we're going to have a conversation about unity and about what unity means in the three sides of the triangle. And what we're going to talk about service and what service means. I was I wasn't sat down and given an indoctrination into the three legacies of the triangle. I was just told, get in the car. <laughs> get, get in the car is what I was told. And I, I remember the day that I met my sponsor. Uh, uh, it was a noon meeting. And uh, I was three or four days sober. I'd been going in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for about three or four years at that point. I'm a guy that gets eight or ten days on average sober and then I'm driven back to drinking again. I'm just, I'm the guy that when I show up here broken and beat up and destroyed and tore up and I'll do anything, anything you tell me to do. And I really mean it until you tell me to do something. And then I'm not real sure that I want to do what it is you tell me to do, right? But I'm, a, I'm just this guy that shows up at AA and I hang around for three, four, five, six, seven, ten days. And then inside I get so uncomfortable that things starts to happen inside me where I start to get afraid and uptight and uncomfortable and I don't want to burn my life to the ground and I don't want to do again what I've been doing but I can't stand it anymore and I got to do something and I got to get relief from what I'm doing so I go and drink and sometimes I drink I go to a meeting and I leave the meeting and I go drink after the meeting uh, I started by sobriety in Southern California where the meetings are typically an hour and a half long with a little break in the middle and I'm the guy that doesn't come back from the break. I'm the guy that leaves at the break. Or if I do come back, I've usually been in my car and drank something, smoked something, done something. So the second half of the meeting is far more entertaining than the first half of the meeting. I get, uh, I never really put any time together. And so this time when I met this, this guy that was to be my sponsor, I was at this noon meeting and I was sitting there and I knew I wasn't going to stay sober. I just knew I wasn't going to stay sober. Why would I think I was? I mean, I'm just a guy that gets drunk. That's what I do. I'm the I did it again guy. I'm the guy that shows back up at the meeting and I did it again and I'm new again and I don't want to raise my hand. Do I have to raise my hand? I mean, holy cow, 
I raised my hand for about a year, right? Can't get 30 days together to get a week without raising my hand. I finally don't raise my hand. And before the next home group meeting, I'm raising my hand again. I'm just, I should just sit in meetings like this for the whole meeting. <laughs> Would you like to share? No, just new again. Right? I'm, just, I'm just that guy. And uh, I met him at this new meeting and, uh, and he started to share about loneliness. And he got my attention. Because I knew, I knew that I couldn't, I knew I shouldn't drink. I knew by that point when I started to drink, I couldn't stop. I knew I was powerless over alcohol. I knew I was powerless over it when I was drunk and I was powerless over it when I was sober. The thing that was bothering me was that in periods of abstinence, my life was so painful and boring and lonely. And I was so uptight and so disconnected that I couldn't stand to stay in abstinence. That was my problem. And he talked a little about the drinking and he talked a little about what it was like to get the phenomenon of craving and not be able to stop. But he talked a lot that day about being in a room full of people he knew cared about him. He talked about how he came from a big family. I didn't come from a big family, but he talked about how he came from a big family. And he could be in a room with that family and they're telling them that they they love him and he can't feel their love. He knows they're not lying. But to him, it doesn't penetrate. And he's talking about loneliness, about being with, with his peers and being with people he went to college with, the people he went to school with, and he can't feel connected. And he's talking about being with, with friends in AA and he's not plugged in and having relationships with people. And it's a, it's a physical and supposedly emotional relationship, but he struggles to feel that. And he talks about how that's gone away for him. And you could tell when he was talking about it that there was something about him that even though he understood what I was feeling, he clearly didn't feel that way anymore. So after the meeting, I went up to him and I asked him uh, for help. I was afraid to ask him to be my sponsor. To me, that's like asking a girl to dance at the prom, and I'm not that guy, right? I'm not that guy. But I went up and I asked him to help me. What I didn't know was that he doesn't usually attend that meeting, that he was there at that meeting that day because there was a girl who was interested, to, and that was her home group. And he was there to meet her. Because God will use our defects and our character strengths, won't he? And he was at that meeting to meet a girl, but he didn't miss a beat. He told her that he wasn't going to get to spend time with her. And he sat down and spent time with me. And I didn't know it, but I was witnessing recovery and service in that moment. And I didn't know that's what I was witnessing, but that's what I was witnessing. It was on a, on a, a, two, on a Monday night It was when I met him. And that Tuesday, he told me to meet him at Westcare Detox, which is our local indigent detox facility. And he told me with five days sober to meet him at that detox facility and to carry that message into that detox. And I said, what do I got to say? He says, you got to say how you get five days sober. You get to offer these guys hope that you can be five days sober outside of this facility. Come to the meeting. And I didn't know, but I was being given a service habit right then and there on my, my first day of meeting this guy. And after that meeting, he told me to meet him. And I've been involved in, in service, and we'll talk about that ever since then. And that night, he told me to meet him at his house for a big book study uh, on Tuesday night at his home. And I've been a regular attendee of that meeting uh, every Tuesday that I'm in Vegas that I possibly can be there ever since that day. And that meeting is a big book workshop. And I, he got me involved in recovery that day. And when I got there, he introduced me to all his friends, and they came around, and they welcomed me and they made me feel welcome and they made me feel like these were guys that wanted me to be around even though I couldn't I couldn't feel 
yet any of their love or fellowship or comradeship. I couldn't feel any of it. But that night in his home, I was welcomed in his home by the other members of that, that workshop, the other members of what was to become our home group. And in my first day of meeting my sponsor, I was shown recovery in that step study, service by him, and recovery and service by him sitting with me after the meeting and putting his personal plans aside. I was shown recovery and service, and I was shown service at that detox facility and unity by the members of that, of that home group. And I had no idea that I'd stumbled into this three legacy group. I had no idea what a gift it was that I was given. I had been going in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for uh, three and a half or four years. By the time I showed up, honestly, I didn't want to live anymore. I, I didn't want to... I, I say often, and, uh, and I think it's true that I was suicidal, I guess, I would fantasize about what it would be like to be able to run my car into the center divider on the freeway. I would fantasize about what it would be like for me to jump off this crazy train. But the truth is, is that I just didn't have the nerve to do anything like that. I mean, on top of everything else, I think about myself and I don't think anything nice about myself. I hate me. I hate you, but I hate me a little bit more. Right. And I hate me. And I wish that I could. I wish I could check out. But on top of everything else I know about myself. I can't kill myself. I'm a coward. On top of everything, I'm a coward. I can't do what I can perceive as being the right thing. And he got me right away involved in working the steps out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got blessed. I got blessed because the resistance was gone. You know, I'm the guy that would come to the meetings and I would want to hang out in the fellowship and I'd want to go to your barbecues and I would want to play cribbage at the bar of the local club and you guys had a neat thing here that I didn't have much access to uh, in my drinking and, 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 and drugging at the end, which was girls, which was which was kind of it's kind of a neat you know, program of attraction. And I was attracted. Right. And so so I wanted I wanted to hang out in the in the fellowship. But something would always happen to me when I would try and hang out in the fellowship. It seemed like it would be exciting at first. It seemed like it was something I wanted to do at first. But what always happened after a short amount of time is that even in the fellowship, I wouldn't feel connected. I wouldn't feel, you know, what happens to me, and I don't know if this happens to you, but I go into an AA club when I'm brand new, and I walk in the room, and I'm delighted to be there at first. But after a few days, I'm looking around the room, and I'm making my little judgments. Right? I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm not as good as you. And I'm not as good as you. And I'm drawing my little chart and trying to figure out who I'm better than, who I'm worse than, so I know how to behave. I know how to behave towards the people I think I'm better than. I'm good at looking down my nose at people who I think I'm superior to. And I'm really good at doing two things. I do two things with people that I think are better than me. The first thing I do is I kiss their butt. And the second thing is I talk about them behind their back. Those are the two things that I, that I do with people that I think are superior to me. And I'm good at those. I have this test. But when you do that, when you spend your life in comparison with everybody else, the third comparison I never made, which is I'm just like you. I never made that comparison. My comparisons were always I'm better than you or I'm worse than you. And after a very short amount of time, when you come to AA and you try to fit in the fellowship and what you're looking for is you're looking for differences AA becomes lonely and boring, and you add that on top of the vacancy of untreated alcoholism, and I got a drink. 
and I got a drink. And I think what you offer me, and this is what I think, and I believe this. I believe that what you offer me, if I'm able to stay sober one day at a time forever, is how I feel a week sober forever. And it's not a good thing, right? I mean, I feel like crap. And I think you're telling me if you come to enough AA meetings, young man, and you do what we do in AA, you'll be able to feel one day at a time like crap. (laughs) (laughs) But at least you'll be sober and... I love Doug yesterday, and we'll give you a coin and a cake, right? I love that. We'll give you a cake. Oh, thank you for that, right? But he gets me right away involved in the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, right away thrown into the, into the 12 steps and, and, and half, of the, half of the recovery piece of the process. And, and I had no idea what this journey was that he was going to take me on. But he took me on this journey of... of I. I'm the guy that comes into A and I look at the steps on the wall and I make this really big mistake. I can see step one. You can't live my life and not see step one. I can see step one. I can see step one in my life. Obviously, right? Not my first meeting, not my second meeting, not the first six months of going in and out. But after three and a half years of dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I get it. I may not know the words, powerless over alcohol and life's unmanageable, but I know this sucks and I ain't no good at it, right? I can, I can see that pretty clearly. But then you got that God stuff, right, that comes next. You got that God stuff. You got that, that coming to believe and then turning my life over. And I'm just not capable of that. And because I'm not capable of that, I don't think I can do the rest of this stuff. I don't think I can do the rest of this stuff. And I got blessed. It got explained to me that doing the rest of the stuff is really where two and three come into play. Do the, just forget two and three. Do the rest of it. Two and three will come somewhere around nine and eleven eventually. Maybe. But don't worry about that, Sheldon. Just get on with the work. And he got me on with the work. And I tell you, a funny thing happened. There was a gentleman that uh, when I got sober, my sponsor... Um, and some of you have met my sponsor. I think he's been out to this convention. Bob D. my sponsor. My sponsor and another gentleman, uh, 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 a gentleman by the name of John, were the two guys in my circle of friends. You're either sponsored by Bob or by John, and most of them actually were sponsored by John. And John used to say this thing, kid, you're, you're, you're sitting in a chicken coop trying to be a chicken, and if you want to be a chicken, you better lay some goddamn eggs, right? <laughs> that was kind of his... His, his big thing, right? I, what do you mean? You've got to work them steps if you want to feel like you belong in Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't feel like you belong because you haven't done any of the work. Right. See, I wanted to come here and I wanted you to love me till I could love myself, which really sounded kind of bizarre. You, you, you I mean, one, first of all, I won't say that. I was going to say I've been single for a long time. I've been loving myself forever, but I don't, that probably wouldn't be appropriate, would it, Harold? I'm not going to say that. But, but, I'm not, I'm not going to say that, right? But, 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 but I thought that I could sit here and get recovery by osmosis. I thought at best I could sit here long enough to feel like I belong. I thought if I stayed here long enough, I would feel like I fit in Alcoholics Anonymous. I never got that way. In fact, my loneliness got worse. My separation felt worse. My feelings of not belonging got worse. The longer I sat in AA, the more isolated and afraid and uncomfortable I got. Sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous felt like it was the problem after a while, right? And, 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 and it just, oh, I just can't do it. 
I got to go drink. And between John T. and, and my sponsor uh, encouraging me to work the steps, this was the first time I believed that I could fit and belong in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a great part about Big Book that I'm going to embarrass myself and, 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 and misquote, but on 164, it, it says, Abandon yourself to God as you now uh, uh, believe in God. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. And I must have heard that read a thousand times in meetings. And for some reason, I transposed them a little bit. And I thought it said, or I acted like it said, or I believed that it said based on my actions. I believed what it said was join us. Clear away, the, abandon yourself to God. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find. As if you join us first. But it doesn't say that. And it took me a long time and a lot of nudging from my sponsor for it to be explained to me that I have to do the steps first. I have to do the recovery piece of the triangle before I feel like I belong here. And I had no idea that was the case. I went through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I don't know if any of you guys have had the same experience as me. This is my experience. I did start sponsoring people pretty early in my sobriety. Uh, I was 60 days sober when the first guy that I ever sponsored approached me to be a sponsor, and it was very unnerving for me. There's a few things about me that have changed and I've grown over the years, and I'm embarrassed to admit, but I want to admit to you folks in, in this kind of a, a setting, that when I got here, uh, perhaps because of the way I was raised, perhaps because of where I was born, perhaps because of things that happened early on, I wasn't born with any prejudice, but I had, I had developed some by the time I got here. It's bizarre. Uh, because I'm, I'm, I grew up in a Jewish home. I'm Jewish. There's a lot of anti-Semitism, but still I developed some racism. So I've got this, I don't, I don't know any black people, and I just have some ingrained racism, right? Thankfully, over the work in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's not only gone away, but now I think it's funny when I look back at the way I used to think. But I'm, I'm, re- and I'm homophobic is another thing that I am. I'm homophobic, and I don't know why. I've never known any gay people, but... I just think you're supposed to be. If you grew up in the house I grew up in, around the people I grew up, you're supposed to be homophobic. And, and AIDS was, was in the, you know, I got sober in the mid-90s, and it was like the AIDS epidemic, you know, all through the 80s, right? I mean, I used to hang out with this guy, say, you know, he's this, this old hippie, you know, probably about Doug's age or something, right? He would, he, would, he would say to me, you know, kid, I don't know what you guys did. You know, we gave you sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and you turned it into AIDS, crack, and rap. I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know what the hell you guys did, but you screwed it up, for God's sakes, right? The AIDS epidemic is prevalent, and uh, this guy's a black homosexual guy with AIDS. And he tells me that within the first three minutes of, of, of meeting him. And then he asks me if he could file sponsor and I, I want to find a way not to, because I, I'm not interested, right? I'm not interested. I'm pretty sure that I can catch AIDS. I'm afraid I can catch gay, and I just, I'm just afraid of the whole thing. So I call my sponsor, and I explain to him. I said, Bob, there's this black gay guy with AIDS that wants me to sponsor him. I'm not sure about blacks. I'm afraid of gays, and he's got AIDS. How do I tell him No. And I don't know exactly what my sponsor said, but I, I think he said something like, I don't like short, fat Jews, but I said yes to you. <laughs> <laughs> so I started sponsoring this guy, and I tell you, the goofiest thing happened. Within 
within no time at all, I've, I've fallen in love with this guy. Because I could see that he is exactly like me, even though we have nothing in common on the outside and nothing in common in the things that we like and the things that we do, that he is wired the same way as I am. And I was driven into service by my sponsor, into sponsoring guys. And if you, boy, it's funny because when you go to a roundup, typically the people at the roundup in an area are the active members of AA. Uh, Typically that's who, so when I give my talk later on this evening, I'll be talking to the active people of the St. Louis area. When you do a workshop at a conference, you are talking to the crazy active, right? I mean, like, I'm going to say anything to any of you you don't already know. In fact, some of you are taking notes to correct me on crap I got wrong, right? I mean, trying to explain anything to you guys is, is a little goofy, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway, right? If, you ha- if you're not sponsoring people, I mean, boy, if you're not in service work helping the new man as he walks in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, we, we, we miss I'd say 80% of what it is that AA has to offer, maybe even more. Maybe even more. I mean, selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of my problem. Selfishness, self-centeredness is what's wrong with me. I love it when people talk about AA as a self-help program. Like, boy, not in the book I read. The book I read talks about self-abandonment, right? That more, if self is the problem, more self can't be the solution. And helping people is where the magic happens. I mean, at minimum. At minimum, it distracts me from the insanity of my head that is constantly checking two things, how I feel and what I think is going to happen, right? It's like constantly, how do I feel? Uh, okay, uh, not great. Wait a minute, I'm checking. Are you like me? Would I go home tonight? Right? If I go up to the hotel room tonight and I sit on the bed and I think for a little bit about my life, my life is good. I have my own business. It's doing pretty well. I'm married to a beautiful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and, and she, she adores me. And, and I kind of like her too. I got a, I, I adore her. I got a beautiful, healthy son who's a good student. He's 14. He causes no trouble. I got some toys. I get to come home. I mean, my life is pretty good, right? But if I go upstairs and I sit about my life, what will happen is I will spiral down. Right? I'll find things to be depressed about and I'll focus on them. Right? I, I don't know about you, but I very rarely, sometimes it will happen, but very rarely do I sit and contemplate my life and start giggling incessantly. Right? <laughs> a great member of our home group, you ask him how he's doing, he'll say, my life is perfect as long as I don't think about it. Right? And I'm, ex- I'm exactly that guy. My life is perfect as long as I don't think about it. So at minimum, working with new guys will distract me from the insanity in my head. But I tell you, the first time I noticed the magic of working with new guys is the first time I heard a fist step. I don't know if your fist step was like my fist step. My fist step went like this. It was long, right? It was long. There was a lot of names on the list, a lot of fears. One of the fears and resentments was that the sex inventory was pretty short, right? But, but, but it was a pretty, it was a pretty, for me, it was a pretty long inventory. So we get about a third of the way through. And if your sponsor's like my sponsor, he's trying to explain to me, you know, the selfish, dishonest, self-seeking and fear. He's trying to dissect my fist step with me. And about a third of the way through, I can't hear anything. And I'm just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. 
Because I'm so so sick of, of him talking about me and me looking at me and it's just boring. And I just really what I'm thinking is shut up, shut up, shut up. First of all, right, you told me you care about me and you're picking on me. Right. I don't say that. I go, uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. So when I'm listening to you, when you're listening to my fifth step, I'm in defensive mode and I'm not really getting what I should be getting. And then I got some puke sitting next to me that can't stay sober or is newly sober. And he's sharing his stuff. And I know he's not listening. But I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, that's exactly the way I've been with my mom all these years. Oh, my God, I did that yesterday. I got plans to do that tomorrow. Oh, my God. I'm like that. I'm like him. I'm the same. And I get plugged in and I get to, I get that that wall between me and humanity crumbles. It crumbles. And I go out to the world and I start to make amends and I think I'm going to make amends because I got to clean up the side of the street. And I'm doing that and I'm trying to make things right for you. But what happens inside of me is that I get connected to the world. I guess. I guess the point for me is this. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous wanting to sit in the fellowship long enough to get well enough to work the steps. And to work the steps well enough and long enough to be able to get involved in service. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to come in here and sit on the fellowship. Three legacies, three sides of a triangle. A couple of us in here have sat on a three-legged bar stool, I would imagine. Pretty familiar with that. You sit on a one-legged bar stool, how well do you balance? That's about how well I balanced on the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I couldn't, I couldn't plug in and I couldn't feel at home and I couldn't feel like I belonged. I went through the process of the steps. And I'm taking meetings in the hospitals and institutions and jails and prisons. And I tell you, if you haven't done any correctional stuff, a magical meeting begins and ends with the Lord's Prayer, with the Serenity Prayer and the Lord's Prayer. Beautiful way to end a meeting with the Lord's Prayer. A really beautiful way to end a meeting is with the clank of a jailhouse door and you're on the free side of that son of a gun. I mean, there is something amazing about being in there with people that you either spent time with or you were seconds and inches away from spending time with. And you relate and you connect and you're them. And then you go to McDonald's. There is something magical about that. And I'm involved in service work and I'm a GSR of my meeting. And I've done one of the theories of my program that has been the weakest part of my program is is a part that, that Harold's been very involved in. I've not been really much on the service structure side. I've been a GSR of my home group and that's as far as I went on the service structure side. Because for me that's not where my personal passion has been. My service work has been in institutions, halfway houses, detoxes, getting the new wet guy and, 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 and working with that guy. And, and, I, and I, I have a 14-year-old son who as yet has not shown any alcoholic tendencies. Uh, I was having dinner with a friend of mine who was taking 10 years and that friend's mom. And I was telling her about my son and about how, you know, oh, my son's going to be fine. He's 14 already. By the time I was 14... I was, I was drinking every day, doing crack and acid, I mean, or freebase at the time. I'm, I'm a mess when I'm 14. 
my son's not like that. I think we're safe. And she told me that her son, who's an alcoholic that was homeless behind a heroin addiction, she's telling me, well, he didn't have his first drink until he was 20. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I thought I was out of the woods, but I'm not, I'm not. But I want AA to be here for him if he needs it. And it is the people that are involved in that part of the service structure, along with those of us also that are, that are doing 12-step work, and then the hybrids that do both, that are, that, that's where the real beauty is. Harold's one of these guys that does both sides of this deal. And, and that's what's going to make AA here for my son when he gets here. But that this involvement in recovery and in service for me is where unity grew. That my involvement in the fellowship is something that I had to suffer through in early sobriety. I didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't feel like I fit. I didn't feel like AA was a place I could make my life. I just didn't feel that way. But as I went through the steps and I got a taste of what it was like to take other guys through the steps and I got involved in service and I started going to the detoxes, the halfway houses, the jails, the prisons, the institutions and guys would come out and I would sponsor guys. I think that Wilson tells us in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous the antidote for loneliness. And what he says is he says that you will create the fellowship you crave. And I don't think unity is something that I find before I find service and before I find recovery. That it is in the recovery and in the service that the fellowship grows up about me that I desperately crave and that allows me to stay sober one day at a time in Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's my experience with the three legacies. Uh, I hope I helped some of you and didn't bore most of you. Thank you for your time. Hey everybody, I'm Harold Alcoholic. Good to be here. Thanks, Sheldon, for kicking us off. And, uh, and uh, you know, in my experience, it's not a whole lot different than Sheldon's. I know there's three types of people that come to AA. There's those who make it happen, those who watch it happen, and those who don't know what's happening at all, right? And I've been all three of those guys. You know, I didn't know what was happening when I got here. And I sure watched AA happen for a long time. And when I watched it, and I talked about that earlier this morning, you know, those first three years of my life, I just ran loosey-goosey in, in AA, and, and, and my true character shined, and I paid a lot of consequences, you know, in sobriety. Some of the hardest moments I ever had in Alcoholics Anonymous were when I was just living a freestyle life, doing what I want, on step none, no sponsorship in my life, no real strong home group in my life, no accountability to anybody, just doing what I want, going through a lot of things, and, uh, and, and hanging my hand on that, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days, 120 meetings in 90 days, whatever, going to a lot of stuff, but never really grounded in anything, no structure in my life whatsoever, and it cost me, it cost me a lot of things, you know, it was, you know, like Sheldon, I was attracted to the women when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I met a young lady early in sobriety, and uh, and she came in from out on, she was beautiful, and she ended up getting pregnant, you know, out of this deal, and, and six months into the pregnancy, she decided she didn't want to be a part of this recovery deal anymore and didn't want, to be, want me to be a part of that child's life. And she left recovery altogether, gone. Never to return. And here I was, you know, barely over, you know, not much over a year sober, a couple of years, you know, not even two years sober, having to try to fight this. And uh, Robbie remembers all this like it was yesterday. And, uh, and I filed a fraternity suit, and long story short, it took two or three years for that to all transmit. And by the time it finally went to court, I was finally worked in the program alcoholics office. I finally had a sponsor. Things were starting to happen. I had a job. Went to court trial. You know, probably had 30 people from AA that came to the court trial for me. My boss was there. My whole family's there. 
had been more confident sitting in a room in a, in a trial setting ever in my life. You know, and here I, and I come into this place and I sit down. And I haven't been involved with this child hardly at all in those, well, none, really, the last, you know, she was over three years old at this time. And I'll never forget going into that trial, sitting on that, on that, on that trial, and this, this prosecuting attorney getting up in there and pulling out my past. And like I said, I just had a lot of evil in my past. And I didn't have a whole lot of my silver resume to show for my life. And this prosecutor did, did, did a tremendous job to butcher me and skin me and gut me alive right in front of these people. And as a result of that, this, this uh, judge agreed that it was the best interest. She had married this guy that I think she was having an affair with the whole time, playing with this guy. And they got married and they filed a countersuit to adopt this child. And I just dropped the paternity suit and challenged the adoption. Um, but it was, at the end of the day, the gavel hit. And the judge said, we think it's in the best interest of this court that we remove your rights as a parent or as a father and we go ahead and grant this adoption. And, uh, and that happened to me in sobriety. It was, and uh, it was the hardest sentence I ever got in my entire life. You know, I went home and I crawled up like a little fetus on the couch and I was just heartbroken by the whole event. And I couldn't believe it happened to this guy. And, uh, and since then, you know, that times went on. That's, that was that She was born June, June the 6th of 1990. Uh, you know, so she'll be... 26 years old, you know, and I, I, and when she was 18 through sponsorship, I was able to start working back through that. But that's where my life goes when I'm living a freelance life in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where life takes me, you know. When, when our book says we look back in our life and we see we made decisions based on self, which later put us in a position to be hurt, then I, I paid the cost. And it was no more looking at John Barleycorn or pointing to the alcohol. This is the problem in my life. The root of the problem was exactly what Sheldon talked about itself. Itself and my life didn't really get changed until I got grounded into sponsorship. When I really got into recovery and started this journey on the three legacies, and uh, and like and I shared my story earlier how sponsorship came to be about in my life, but but I just took it for granted. I had no respect for people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no respect for people's time and energy and what a sponsor really gave up and the time they gave up and the sacrifices they made for me. And I can remember sitting at my sponsor Roy's house one day, coming there middle of the afternoon at three o'clock, and I'm going through my weekly little drama this is what happened in my life i didn't do anything he told me last week and then guess what it's worse this week you know the same old same old thing over and over again and he's like harold i want you to do me a favor i want you to take a cup of coffee i want you to pour it out and i want you to leave and i said excuse me he said i want you to take your coffee i want you to dump it out i want you to leave i said what's going on he says man he said you're wasting my time man you come over here and you ask for my advice we spend hours talking about this stuff and you don't you do very little of it you're just wasting my freaking time so I'm done. So take your coffee, dump it out, and get out of here. So I dumped the coffee out, and I walked out, and I kicked the beer can all the way down the alley, cussing underneath my breath, mumbling. Well, I don't like you. I don't prize fighters in my head going, let's go back and whip his ass. That's what he did. <laughs> the other part of me is wanting to cry because this guy just rejected me. you know. And it took me about two weeks to suck it up, but I finally went back and said, uh, all right, man, you know, let me try this again. And, and so that was a big turning curve for my life. I just didn't have respect. And that is the key word. I didn't have respect for the people that came before me. I didn't have respect for Bill and Bob. I didn't have respect for you. And I might say I did with my lips, but my actions proved otherwise. I came into meetings. I talked how I wanted to talk. Profanity came out of my mouth. He didn't like it too bad. I, think I, I just didn't care. You know, I'm going to do what I want, how I want. There's 700 meetings. Go find another one. That was just really where my attitude was at for so long in recovery. And how I survived it and didn't blow my brains out or... or fall back into the bottle, I'll never know, other than the grace of God in my life. But but eventually I got into this sponsorship and I got into this recovery and I got into this deal. And little by little my life started to change. And I started to get opportunities to do some service stuff. 
and I, and I shared some of those earlier with the correction stuff, which I still do today and probably will do till the day I die. I mean, that's just part of what my AA is. But, but just being involved into the group, just giving a job in the group, whether it was making coffee or whether it was just standing at the door shaking hands. So the, you know, this is one of the most spiritual gifts we have that possess is this hand right here. You know, just to be able to stick it out and say, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's one of the best tools we ever had right here. When we go to the prison, I mean, and, and Frank can attest to this. We stand at the door, we shake every guy's hand coming in. Chris can attest to it. We shake every guy's hand coming into the prison. We shake everybody's hand going out. One of the biggest tools. I remember speaking at a guest, as a guest at another prison not many, many years ago. And the guy in the back says, man, you won't remember me. I was at the institution where you were at about five years ago. But I, I forget your name, but I always remembered you because you always shook my hand before I came in when I shook my hand when I came out. It's just a powerful, powerful tool. But it's one that if you go to your hunger and watch how many people really do it. You know, it's so easy to get caught up and not do these things inside our own our own group. So, you know, so just learn to become a make it happen person. It's a process and it, and it really comes through fundamental sponsorship, I think, and, and, and being a part of that. I had a series of sponsors in recovery and my last sponsor got really, really, really ill. And that's been many, many years ago. And, and as a result of that, you know, I was doing a lot of speaking, doing a lot of correction stuff around the country. And, and, and Tom I and I were together all the time. And it just worked out. One day we were at a convention. I think we were in Las Vegas, actually. We were in Vegas doing a convention together and doing a workshop on corrections. And, and, and that's where we started the sponsorship lineage between him and I. And, and, uh, and, and Tom is really who shaped and formed me into become, challenging me on, on becoming a Three Legacy member. And, and why was that important? Why was it important to, to understand the Three Legacies and the structure of AA? Because I really didn't. And, uh, but but what, it, what he taught me was that, you know, A is on your watch. A is on my watch. You know, this is on our watch. It's been handed to us. Here it is. You know, it's our responsibility to, to take care of it to the best we can be. And uh, and I was a one legacy member for so long, you know, and, and, and you used uh, Sheldon's metaphor to one legacy too. I mean, that's where I was at. But when but Bill talks about it, and he talks about it on page 109 and 12 and 12, and he gives this whole scenario, and he says, even the, even the newest newcomers, with hardly any sobriety at all, has something to offer. This is what the Sheldon was referring to, that five days. You can still go and tell them about your five days of service. And he goes, and once you do that, you experience this thing called the magnificent reality. And I always love that term, the magnificent reality, because that's what it is, because you don't know it until you experience it. It's like becoming a father or, or doing this for the first time. You can hear about it, you can read about it, you can go to class on it, but until you experience it, and you moms know what I'm talking about, until you become a mother for the first time, you don't know what that is, but when they hand you that little ball-headed person and said, here, it's a game-changer for your life. And it's the same way as what Sheldon is so very well articulated of carrying a message. And, uh, you know, because when I'm busy thinking about this corn dog, I'm not thinking about this one, you know. And my life really doesn't get any better than when I'm in that process. But it's through that sponsorship chain that we, I think, that we get there. And so working with Tom, you know, he challenged me through traditions. He challenged me through concepts. And he challenged me to look at the service structure and read the old the old literature and to understand and respect where we came from. And the key word there is respect. It doesn't necessarily mean everybody in the room is going to be a GSR. It doesn't mean everybody's going to be involved in the area. It doesn't mean everybody's going to take meetings in and detoxes or prisons. It's just wherever God's called to use your gift talents, wherever they call it to. But everybody's got everything, but at least need to know about it. At least, at least, at least need to have a level of respect for it. You know, and this is a typical business meeting. This is a group conscience tonight, and this is our home group. And after the meeting, I say, you know, tonight we got our business meeting after the meeting. For all those of you who stick around afterwards, we're going to have our group conscience. I guarantee you half this room would be gone. Because i got to get home and watch the Blues game. Because i got to get home because i got to get up tomorrow. So does everybody else. But i got to get home and get up tomorrow. And, and, then, you know, and then people that are out there pouring their hearts out going to IR meetings and the CPC meetings and going to 
the GSR going through the service meeting each month and, and they're trying to put together a report and the secretary's taking time to put together minutes and people are putting time and effort in to have organization and I don't have the time to sit there and pay them the respect that they deserve. Yet I'm sponsoring guys saying, hey, we can cut out here, man. This is important stuff. Let's go. You know. So then this guy doesn't, for years and years in the A, doesn't support anything. Why? Because he don't know anybody. You know? And that's what happens. It goes on and on and on. And, and you ask people, I mean, when I got started in the service, our, our, our service structure was so divided. When I got involved in corrections, I had, we had prisons ask us, hey, can you come here and do AA? And, and we called the, the, the GSO, and we called, or we called uh, our central area, our area office, and, and they'd say, well, that's you know, all these problems were going on. All these personalities were going on before principles. So the, the, the whole conference was divided here in our area. And not just in our area, but, I mean, the, it was east and west. I mean, the eastern half of the state and the western half of the state were divided. There wasn't any unison going on in service work. It was complete chaos. So we really had a corrections team outside the area for a number of years until they finally said, hey, can you come and join unison? And we were able to deal with some of this stuff. But it was, it was amazing how stuff will go on for generations in Alcoholics Anonymous, and nobody knows what's going on. It's just what they were showing. It's what they watch. It's what they observe. And, it just, and they just take it on as their own, and they, they, they become conditioned that way. It's kind of like the little kid that was sitting over at his mom's house and he's watching her make the ham for Christmas and she gets it out and she's <laughs> cuts off both ends of the ham and puts it in the pan. And she's like, Mom, why are you cutting off both ends of the pan? She goes, well, I don't know. I'm going to ask your grandma because that's who taught me how to do it. She goes into grandma and says, Grandma, I just watched Mom make the ham and she cut off both ends of the ham and put it in the pan. Why do you do that? She goes, well, son, I don't know. Go down and ask your great-grandma. She's down in the basement. That's who taught me how to do it. So you go down and ask great-grandma. Grandma, why do you do that? Why do you cut off both ends of the ham before you put it in the oven? She goes, well, I don't know why those two did it. When I was, when I was a kid, growing up, the ovens were real small and the pans were real small. And the pan wouldn't hit the damn ham. So you had to cut off both ends for a minute. Right? And that's the kind of stuff that goes on in alcohol Thomas. It's been my experience. And a lot of people who say, why do you do that? Why do you, why do you do that? Or you hear somebody say, well, I don't go, I don't go to the, the area, or I don't participate in the area, I don't support the area, I don't support the district. Why? Because it's just nothing but a bunch of politics. If you want to get a resentment, go to the district meeting. <laughs> you know, go to the area assembly. And I'm not saying there might not be some truth to that. But have you ever been? No, I've never been. But yet you hold that position dearly in your heart. And you convey that to every little fellowship event you have. And nobody's involved in the service. And we wonder why when we have workshops like, Hey, we need some people to be involved in this. Can we get involved? We can't anybody get involved. Just because they have this preconditioned notion that this is what it's really about. And so that's where I think that, you know, as a three legacy member, we need to have better influence there as far as how we carry ourselves, how we talk, how we influence others. Um, because, you know, I was raised into three legacy membership. Uh, my sponsor, Tom, you know, and, and Tom's been definitely ill for a long time. I mean, that's just a fact. And, uh, but, you know, in his heyday, and that, it wasn't that many years ago, him and I did a lot of workshops together. And Tom's big thing is, and, and he would say, it, the biggest threat to Alcoholics Anonymous is the lack of three legacy groups. It is the biggest threat to AA. And, uh, and years ago, when our, our old delegate and our old friend Ed Martin was still alive, he just died this last year, Ed and I, we sat down and we took out the eastern area of Missouri from top of the state to the bottom of the state. And we went through the entire state and we wrote down, and he knew, he knew the state better than I did. And wrote down all the groups that we can we consider were a strong three legacy group. And out of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of groups, we could only come up with about twenty out of all of them that really met the definition of a strong three legacy group. And the rest were really just one legacy groups, some great one legacy meetings or chatterbox meetings. You know, you go to a, an area where we got seven hundred something meetings a week, and a lot of those supposed to fall group, but you walk into a district meeting, you might have five GSRs. 
you know, representing the meeting. And, uh, and that's a big deal. And it's hard to look at this stuff and think, you know, this, is a, <laughs> this could all go away. And, and, uh, and I don't think it'll go away. I think God's got it on his watch this time. But I, but I don't think that removes responsibility. I think we just say, well, God's got to cover I think we have to take ownership for that and be perspective. I mean, if Bill Wilson walked into your area or your district, what would they say? You know, but if they walked into your home group, how would they how would they look at your home group? So I think that's the way we need to look at how am I carrying myself? And because I mean, I believe our sole responsibility is to create an environment where people can have a spiritual experience, where they can experience recovery the way we've experienced. It's my, that's my individual responsibility. It's my our responsibility as a home group, as a district, as an area, as a whole. It's our, our complete responsibility. And, and the million-dollar question is, am I doing that? Am I going in and creating an environment where people have a chance for this type of thing to happen in their sobriety? And if not, what can I do starting today that can change that? So I challenge the guys that I sponsor, man, I want you to become a three-legacy member. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the area treasurer or the area chair, but what it means is you need to know what that means. You need to know, you need to know respect those people. And when somebody says, hey, i got a report, that I can sit down long enough and keep my feet together and my ears up just to hear what they got to share and to thank them for your service. Hey, thanks for taking the time to go there every once a month on a Thursday. I know it sucks that you got to go do that sometimes, but I know you do it and I appreciate it. And respect the people that we do in, in service. I asked the, uh, the, the, the uh, area delegates, both I know well, Marge and Dave on the western side, I said, can you guys send me a summary of the annual conference? They just came back from the annual conference. And I said, and I, and I asked them to share the good, the bad, and the ugly of what's going on with AA as a whole. Ask them to share this with me. And they actually collaborated, which is, shows you how well Missouri has healed in our areas, area 38 and 39. We've healed quite a bit over the last 15 years. And there's a lot more collaborated efforts to do AA as a whole on the state than there's ever been since I've been sober. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. But they collaborated. The delegates collaborated on one delegate report. And, then they, and this is their summary. So I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I just want to point out a few things. And then I, then I asked one of the people that sits on the board of directors for Alcoholics Anonymous to send me their take. And their take is a little different than their this take, just a little bit. But I, but I think it's important that you know it. And uh, and if you haven't heard your delegates report, you know, and you haven't been to your district or your GSR hasn't brought the delegates report, this is how you know what's going on Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and it's important that you know these things. So just some of the stuff, one of the big controversies of, of uh, AA this past this, uh, this past deal was this plain language big book, and I'll talk about that here in a minute. That was a big deal for a lot of groups. Hopefully you talked about that in your group, and it went on. But one thing that knows, if you didn't know, there's a lady who's in charge of probation and parole for uh, the eastern half of Missouri. Her name is Nancy McCarthy. She's a non-alcoholic. Um, Nancy's been a pro, pro AA uh, her entire time she served in corrections for our state. And uh, had a privilege to sponsor her brother for quite a while in sobriety. Nancy was voted on as a non-alcoholic trustee this year, which is awesome. And then we had another lady, the Honorable Christine Carpenter, that was voted on as well. And so two of the new trustees that were voted on come out of the eastern half of Missouri. So you got that to, to, to think about your own state. And it's the first time that that's ever happened that we had two Class A trustees from the eastern half of uh, Missouri. Here's some delegate statistics. The average age... Alcoholics Anonymous is 57 years old. The oldest average age is 76, and the youngest average age is 33. Sobriety, the average is 22 years. The longest average is 50, and the shortest is 9 of the youngest. Now, we're talking, I'm going across, let me take that back. The average age is 57 years old. The average sobriety is 22 years. The average service 
the person in service is 17. Now, uh, the oldest age people, it's 76, the longest is 50, the longest is 50, 49 for service. And then the youngest people, the average is 33. Sobriety averages right around nine years, and the shortest amount of time in service is six. So, I mean, you can still see that the youngsters are alive and, and proud in Alcoholics Anonymous. So, but, but overall, this is the facts about AA. The trends that are currently going on, membership levels in Alcoholics Anonymous remain flat. You know, we're not, we haven't grown. You know, we just remain flat. Uh, contributions show little growth in Alcoholics Anonymous overall. Uh, literature shells show no growth. Now, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reasoning behind some of this stuff, so it's not fair just to slay these things out because digital media and all those things have taken in. But the reality of it is, this is a snapshot of where we're at. Funds, funds are predicted to decline. If nothing changes, the reserve will be start to be used for operating expenses starting this year. On average, of $10.82 per member per contribution could keep this fund stable. So that dollar that we, that we are accustomed to put in the basket, I mean, if all of us would just put in, send GSO $1 a month, $12 a year, would take care of our financial problems. Each, each member just write a check for $12 and send it down. Those members wouldn't have any financial problems. Or if every group just participated in the GSO birthday plan and wrote a check for the amount of years of sobriety, we wouldn't have any more financial problems. Um, uh, took no action on increasing the area contribution, leaving it the same, and, uh, and no action on raising the individual bequest to a limit of 5000 It was recommended not to be approved uh, from that, et cetera. But, uh, and then, of course, we had the, the corrections video approved, and that was retitled A New Freedom from Sure Beats Sitting in a Cell and some other preliminary stuff. But I want to read you what, what, what uh, this gentleman sent me, and I asked him for the, the positive, the negative, and et cetera. And this is how he starts out. So I don't want to cut anything out, but this is what he said. This is coming from one of the directors of AA. He says, first, I don't think anything at the conference is negative. So I love how he said it. Even if I did not go my way, either I believe in our 36 principles or I don't. I thought that was awesome. As AA comes to AIDS, makes clear, the group always knows better than any individual AA member. That includes me. I found it interesting the conference who's to not move, chose not to move forward with a plain language big book, yet it removed the last two paragraphs of the Concept 11 essay. I think the fellowship is good with the basic text, not changing it. However, the sexiest remarks in the Concept essay they wanted to remove. I could see how these make sense. We want to honor our history in the basic text, but we can also remove some outdated language and views in the service manual. The conference passed an action for the trustees to involve the delegates in the conference agenda process, I see this as very healthy. As for our financial health, we are okay. The reserve is okay, and we are on track to have pension, our pension, pension fund fully funded in a few years. The PGA Pension Guarantee Act did not have an AA accepting. In 2003, we contributed like $400,000 a year to this pension fund. Today, it's $1.5 million. The board has taken actions to correct this the last couple of years. The oldest pension stopped effective 12-31-12. Those in the defined benefit plan stay. It, but those hired in or after 1-113 are now in the new defined benefit plan. They retired medical plan for early retirement between ages 55 and 60 were ended. We have done all, we have done what all other companies have done, including profits. Expenses and costs have been cut across the board, and we use more technology. In 1990, we had 120 full-time employees, and today we have 83. Literature sales will continue to decrease, and digital books drive some of what we know for sure. I see literature shells like smoking AA. We fought about it for years, and then God removed that problem for us. You know? 
I have two concerns about AA overall. This is based on my travels around the world, the U.S., and Canada. Anonymity. It is half our name that's how important. We talk about the 11th tradition of press, radio, and films, but ignore the 12th tradition of anonymity, humility, doing things for no reward. Many speakers today post things on Facebook that don't look humble to me. The outside world wants us to fight the stigma and give up anonymity. They don't understand that drunks were not wired to be famous for being sober. It will kill us. CPC, we have totally dropped the ball across the A. Corrections and PI get all the press, but we need to get back to CPC. Why don't we have drug court committees? I think because it has the four-letter word drug in its name. So many alcoholics wind up here because of drug court and veteran courts. We need to be there. Never have so many people in AA members made a living off of recovery today. They're talking about the recovery economy. Aftercare, sober coaches, and other stuff. It's not popular for some in the recovery world to believe that a person just needs AA. Every single service is being sold. Aftercare used to be AA as paid for a sober coach. What happened to sponsorship? So those are my thoughts. Sorry it was there. But I think those are all relevant to where we're at in, in this world of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I just think it's that, that we're all stewards of it, and we need to honor our, our steps. We need to honor our traditions, and we need to honor the concepts. And we need to know about those things. We don't have to be a scholar on them, but at least you know about them. I should know about our literature, our books, and I should be able to refer people to those things and refer to them when I don't know the answer on something and utilize the people that are giving up their heart, their time, and their energy to go out and do service for our groups, for, for our areas, and all of it. You know, not all of us are called to do it, but we need to respect it. You know, and I think that's the key word, is just respect it. Uh, and not downplay it, not talk negative about it, et cetera, because it only just filters down, and it causes more and more lack of interest in this thing. You know, and, you know, our personal, you know, we share that with our sponsors or our inner circle, but overall we have to be careful with it. I want to leave this last story and we'll wrap it up. In the prison system out in, in Pacific, we had a maximum security facility. And we had an influx because it was an open meeting of all these addicts coming in. At this time, it was meth, methamphetamines. Jefferson County was the number one county for meth for many, many, many years. It's number three today. The, the West Coast or the East Coast has actually taken us over. But we had that stigma for so long. And so much of our prison was full of meth heads that would come to our meetings. And they would just take up. We didn't have no room for anybody else. And it would be, I'm Jerry, I'm an addict, I'm a junkie, I'm Tony, I'm, you know, blah, 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 blah. And we're like, dudes, why aren't you going to N.A.? And their response in this particular prison is, this prison is all I'm talking about. They said, well, man, the reality is there's only one AA meeting here and the meeting sucks. The meeting sucks. So that's why we come. We love your structure. We love your enthusiasm. We love your sobriety. It's awesome. And that's why we're here. And it made sense to me. But I didn't know how to solve the problem. So I went back and talked to the sponsor. And the sponsor just quoted the same page as Sheldon ended his talk with. And I went in my talk with the same thing. On the top of page 64, it says, You may not have access to those who created or wrote this book, but we will show you how to create the fellowship you create. So why don't you go back into that institution, help them find the NA volunteers that can take your structure, take your enthusiasm, go over and start the meeting that they crave. Why don't you just take the lead on that instead of passing the buck? I said, that sounds like a plan. And we went out and did just that. They started that meeting on a Thursday night. As I know today, that's still the largest A group that meets inside that penitentiary today. So I think that's how we work in unison with all this stuff. It's how we work in unison with all the, the outside interests that we might call outside interests that we just remember that our code in this three legacy thing is love and service. You know, no matter what I'm going to do, even if I object to it, if I can take an attitude of love and service, 
it's probably going to come out better than any of that could have planned because we know the master has our best interest at heart. And Sheldon said it earlier at our little side conversation. He said, I truly believe, and I think he's right on with it. He said, I truly believe that God's total control of this whole thing. And when he's done with Alcoholics Anonymous, do what Alcoholics Anonymous wants it to do, it won't exist anymore. But, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. But I truly believe it's on our watch. And it's our obligation, our duty to be stewards of it. To love it with all everything we got and, and to be stewards over it. So it's here for the people of tomorrow. So that's all we got. Thank you for your time. And uh, that's it. You guys are